From the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, KUAR Public Radio brings you Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought, with your host, Bill Marriage. Welcome to the Crossroads of History. Each and every day in communities across America, expectant moms will feel their baby's first kick, parents will listen to their newborn's first cry, and families will celebrate the birthday of a healthy baby. At the same time, each and every day, 13 babies will be lost to SIDS and other sudden unexpected infant deaths. More than 70 new parents will have listened sadly, their stillborn's baby's silence, and countless lives will be lost to miscarriage and other causes of infant death. October is SIDS and Infant Loss Awareness Month, and our topic today is infant loss. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the news. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here in Little Rock. I'm Phil Marriage, your host, and I'm glad to have you with us here today. Our topic is infant loss. And before I do the introduction of my guest here, I do want to remind you that if you'd like to listen to the longer version of the program, you can catch it in two locations, KUAR.org or YTTShow.org. And I also want to thank Katrina Dupins. Before I get started in the program today, she's with UAMS in their media relations She's been able to recommend several different topics, and I wasn't aware that, that this was October, the emphasis on SIDS and infant death. So I'm really glad, Katrina, and she's with me here today. I mean, there's a lot of different things about this topic that I sure didn't know about, and I hope you enjoy as, as we listen. Usually when you listen to the program, folks, you know that I, that I do fairly short introductions to the guests, but my guests are really great today, and there's a lot of things about them that I really want you to know about. So I'm going to take a little bit of time to do a little longer introduction Regina Benz is one of my guests here. She's an employee of UAMS in the cytogenetics laboratory where she has worked for almost 20 years studying human chromosomes for abnormalities of birth defects and cancer. Regina is also a patient of UAMS. And as an OB patient in the spring of 2007, Regina lost her son, Ryan, at 17 weeks gestation. And because the clothes she received for the baby, Ryan, were much too large for his tiny, fragile body, which just happens to a lot. I mean, babies are fairly big, and, and when they're born like that or not born like that, they're pretty tiny. She uh, was inspired and driven to sew tiny garments for babies who are really too small for that traditional clothing. So since 2008, Regina's goal has been to help improve patient-centered care for families who've suffered the loss of a stillborn baby. Uh, nurses who care for grieving families value the layets as an important instrument of healing and bereavement. And Holy Sows is recognized as providing a vital service to UAMS, as well as other hospitals in the state and country and world for that matter. And to date, this ecumenical ministry has given over 4,000 layets, all free of charge, to help comfort and offer support to families. So Regina Benz, really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Also with us here today in the studio is Lori Gardner. Lori works also at UAMS in both the inpatient and outpatient setting. Her current role is serving as the program manager and specialty nurse for the UAMS Angels Arkansas Fetal Diagnosis and Management Program. And she manages a continual dialogue between the physicians, the genetic counselors, and a subspecialty support services in order to update the project team on the prenatal status as well as ensure that the medical team is well aware of the delivery and neonatal care plan. And a passion of hers is being able to aid in the planning and guidance for patients and families that will be experiencing a loss of a child during or after a pregnancy. So, Lori Gardner, welcome to the program, too. Thank you so much. And also speaking with us here in the studio is Dr. Sarah Ellen Peoples. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, which is a division of the neonatology here at UAMS. And she is also with the Arkansas Children's Hospital Palliative Care Team. And she serves as a medical co-director of the UAMS Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Peoples, glad to have you here. Thank you. And it sounds like talking to you, Dr. Peoples, you're right there at the forefront of the people coming in in this situation. In some cases, yes. I work with Lori very closely for prenatal consults and helping prepare families for what we anticipate will be a loss after delivery. But in cases of miscarriage or stillbirth or an intrauterine fetal demise, we don't get to see those families beforehand. And so really the frontline people in those cases are the nurses on labor and delivery. Regina, tell us about this event that's coming up, and we'll have it on our website for those of you who would, would like to go to the website and get some information on it. It's going to be the second annual International Wave of Light Ceremony on October 15th 
Thursday evening at 6.30. It will begin at the Arkansas State Capitol. It is absolutely free to attend. Children's Hospital, UAMS, St. Vincent, Baptist, Cornerstone Clinic, Roller Funeral Homes, Molly Bears, Mamie's Poppy Plates, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, Holy Sows, and many other organizations that offer support to families in this situation will be there to offer comfort and assistance to anyone that wants to come and talk to them. And at 7 o'clock, consistent with the international wave of light that is to happen at 7 o'clock, we'll light a searchlight. And that's sponsored by Roller Funeral Homes. I'm very grateful to them for doing that again. And we'll close the ceremony with a local author, Linda DeMoz, who wrote the book, Mommy, Please Don't Cry, There Are No Tears in Heaven. She wrote that book as a result of her own loss. That's a beautiful way to end the ceremony. And she will be present to autograph books as well. Well, we went last year was the first time, and Regina organized it last year. And I just think... Um, from my perspective, again, as a healthcare provider, but not necessarily a family that has gone through that, we want people to know that we remember and that we recognize their grief and loss and they remember their children. I don't mm-hmm. understand what they have gone through, but I can imagine it was terrible. And, and we want people to know about this and to talk about this. I feel like with social media and other things, too, there are a lot of opportunities now for families to connect with each other and to support each other and to use the experience that they've been through to help other families deal with this grief and this loss. And so we just want to recognize that and to celebrate the lives of these children is really what it is about. Exactly. Exactly. Our intention is not to bring up these horrible memories for people, but to offer encouragement and have an uplifting ceremony where we can just all be together and grieve in a safe location. I'd have to say attending last year as well, again, as a in the healthcare industry part of it, just the, mm. the emotion that happens. Yes, there was grieving, but we saw, me and Dr. People saw quite a few of our families that we have taken care of over the last few years. So to see them and to see them, they're crying, but you're smiling in the same, in the same sense because... Again, I haven't personally experienced it, but when I see that person and they're they're crying for that grief, but they give me a hug and say, "Thank you for recognizing my child." Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a healing experience, I think, for all of us. Yeah. For yeah. those of us also that grieve, we grieve at the hospital, and not in the same way that a family does. But but I go home and cry too when a baby is gone, and for us to be able to recognize that for for our healing but also for the healing and the grief of the families I think for everyone together it's an important experience mm-hmm. it's very beautiful as it all comes together and in that moment of when all the lights are shined up and it's just it's a beautiful moment I think and what date is that again the 15th it's October 15th mm-hmm. it is on infant loss awareness day okay and the wave of light happens in every time zone at seven o'clock so We plan our ceremony to end, to conclude at 7 o'clock with the searchlight coming on. I want to take you guys back to probably 1920, maybe 22 or 23. My dad had eight siblings, and they lost two other brothers or sisters in the early 20s. I can only imagine that families at that particular time had no idea whether or not their child was going to be born healthy. They may have been a little more prepared for, I wouldn't say a surprise of a child who was was stillborn, but they may have been, the statistics may have been favoring that they better watch out or they better be a little more, not get so excited so quickly. Cautious. Yes. Let me start with you there, Regina. Give me a little bit of background, if you will, about where we came from in terms of this loss. Even though my story began in 2007, I feel like I need to go back further to explain some what things were really like for women you know even 20 and 30 years ago mostly they were told that you just get over it and you move on you don't see the baby um you don't speak of the baby you try to get pregnant again as soon as possible i spoke to dr wendell yesterday and asked him of you know his career in obstetrics and he told me that you know, really in the year 2000 is when UAMS was first really making the effort to 
build their perinatal bereavement department, that's when the Resolve Through Sharing training came around. And before that time, you know, they were just, I'm sorry. And that's all that they could offer. And since then, we have the Love Lives program at UAMS, and that gives bereavement boxes and clothing and all other sorts of little treasures that these parents can have when they go home empty-handed. I think something that I was taught, and it, and I'm a new physician. I'm, I'm young. I've not done this as long as some people, and I'm not a mom, so I haven't experienced that. But just the idea that in the past, those early losses in particular were treated more like a pathologic specimen or something that you put in a bucket and you take away and the mom doesn't get to see that. And now we really encourage allowing the staff to help the family spend some time with that child as a child in a life that is to be valued and recognized. And we do footprints and we take pictures and we dress the baby and we call him or her by his or her first name and really have changed the way that we view that child as a child. And I think that perspective also from input from parents who have been through that to say, this is not the way you need to handle this situation and have done things like Regina has done, really has changed the way that the medical profession has responded to those losses. I mean, speaking from a nurse perspective, it's 10 years ago, I was an L&D nurse on the floor. And so the training perspective that has changed, you were trained by the nurse training you. There wasn't a program to go to. Um, we then did not even have a bereavement program at the time. We took photos of babies, but we laid them flat with a rainbow pattern behind them, crossed their arms, and took five pictures, and that was it. And now we've evolved even to professional photographers that donate their time to us and to take those pictures. Now, you don't think that this is just something that happened in Arkansas. This must have been pretty much everywhere that nobody was doing anything. That's true. And Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep is the photography organization that Lori's referring to. That's a national organization, mm-hmm. and there are people that work with those with that organization all across the country. And the perinatal bereavement and hospice support, there are national organizations. And what we're talking about next week, the, the ceremony that we're having at the Capitol is a national day of remembrance. So it is a movement all across the country and really all across the world that these deaths are recognized in a different way. Well, Regina, you lost your son in 2007. In 2007, Which yes. is not very long ago no. and and there really wasn't much available then well at that time the little rock smocking guild had been providing small burial garments for the local hospitals but what they tell me is that they at that time really weren't doing very many for babies under one pound because you know they didn't really know to do that and so that consequently when i received ryan what he was dressed in was much too large for him. Mm-hmm. Even since Holy Sows, you know, it takes a while for the information to spread. And I've had women contact me and just five, six years ago saying that their baby was given to them in a metal surgical bowl or on a preemie diaper. They were just laid on the preemie diaper to pre- be presented to their families. Well, pardon my word here, but why have we as a society been so callous to that event in such an important uh, part of family's uh, history. Where where is our where has our humanity been up until recently? It's hard to say. I want to say that it had something to do with the technological advances in ultrasound and maternal prenatal care. Medically speaking, this is still a new and evolving field because the field of cytogenetics. You know, it was only 1959 that Down syndrome was discovered, and then. It was the 60s before ultrasound technology came about. I just think we're learning more and more. I mean, there's definitely more knowledge to offer on a prenatal basis, but still I think for those situations that come in unknown or sudden, I think as a society, this hurts to Mm -hmm. talk about. Yeah. And it's unexpected in a lot of ways. And I feel like you mentioned earlier when – you know, in the 1920s or early, before we had immunizations, before we had the medical care that we do, um, infant death, child death, just some mortality in general, lifespan, it was very different than what we experience now. And I think for so many people, the death of a child just seems so wrong and, and unexpected. We expect now to have healthy pregnancies and healthy deliveries with the medical care and the advances that we've seen. And when it doesn't happen that way, it's so it seems like it's so much more of a shock than it used to be. 
from where we've Good come point. medically and the advances that we've had technologically over the last several years. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, going back to my history and when I mentioned it at the outset of the program. It just seems that historically people were prepared and now we're not for the very same loss. which was, Mm -hmm. And so maybe they they didn't grieve in the same way. I'm not really sure, but I don't think my my father's family grieved as much as uh, you probably would have grieved, Lori, given if the families were side by side. I think they were like, well, it happened kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And... uh, um, we're not too surprised. It's sad, but off we go. We have six other kids, seven other kids to take care of. And I think some things that we do for with the prenatal diagnosis and ultrasound and some of the genetic testing, there are some things that we can help the family prepare for. Now, it's a shock when they come in for that 20-week ultrasound and they discover that there's something different with their baby or there's something wrong or we're concerned about a congenital anomaly or an abnormal heart or those things. But I think in many ways we can do a great service helping them get ready for that delivery. My friends that have gone to clinic for a normal pregnancy and they go into clinic and there's not a heartbeat. At 38 or they weeks. Ha- with a normal pregnancy. I mean, that you, you don't prepare for that. There is no prenatal diagnosis. In a lot of ways, there's no answer to the question, why did this happen? And I think those losses and miscarriage, other things are, are, are just different in a way and, and horrific for those families because they're not expected and mm-hmm. there's no time to prepare. Let's say the timeline of when uh, you first find out that you're pregnant. What's the timeline when you first begin to expect to find out that there may be a problem? Is it something that you find out fairly soon, or does a number of weeks have to go by? Typically now, as far as ultrasounds concerned, waiting till a gestational age of 18 to 20, 21 weeks, you're going to be able to see more of the anatomy. If there's risk factors early on and they do an ultrasound, for some reason you may see something sooner, or if a mom has a history of loss, but for those families that come in with a sudden loss, there is now testing available afterwards, mm-hmm. genetic testing that can be done to see if that was a reasoning in the result or if it was something that happened. Mm-hmm. Regina, go back into your time, if you would, when you were pregnant, at say maybe 12 weeks or so leading up to Ryan's death. What was your event process there Did from, say, 12 weeks to 17 weeks when he actually wasn't there? I was very, very sick had nausea 24-7, but I was still very excited that I was going to have a baby. I had a five-year-old who was excited to have a younger sibling. You know, everyone was happy and hopeful and looking forward to the future. And on this 17, 18-week ultrasound, my whole family, you know, my husband and my child, went with me to the ultrasound room and when there was no heartbeat, you know, I was left there worried about what my little girl was thinking. My husband was in tears. I was in shock. I just, I just really didn't know what to do. I just, it was, it's disbelief. Did you have any leading up to that that you thought, any indication? It's really strange, but I had a dream the night before that the baby's heart had stopped beating, but... I just sort of shrugged it off. I can't explain it. Mm-hmm. But I still took my daughter and went, you know, I mean, I wasn't worried about, because I didn't really think he was going to be gone. I kind of thought something might be wrong, but I I was, I really didn't think he was going to be gone. I thought it would be okay. So you, I took her. Well, you mentioned you were sick, sickly or whatever, leading up to that. Had you already gone past the morning sickness time and this was like a second dose? I stayed with all of my pregnancies. I stayed sick for 22 weeks. It's common. I was just one of those women that was nauseous all the time. And I just got to where I I was feeling well and eating and life was good. Mm -hmm. And then the rug got yanked out from under me. Okay, 17 weeks happens. You find this is happening. What happened then? Take me through like the next week or two. How did you deal with that loss and how do other people deal with that? At the time, I was given options, and my options were to be knocked out and have my baby mechanically dissociated or to come in and have labor-induced. I opted to go home and have labor-induced the next day. So on Saturday morning, I went to the hospital with a lot of women who were also going to the hospital to be induced 
to have their babies oh, yeah. alive. But I was to be induced to have my baby born not alive. And the labor lasted until Monday evening. He was born at shortly after 7. A lot of that is a blur to me. You know, I, I experienced the pain and the contractions and everything that any other labor and delivery would experience. Learn how do mothers deal with that loss in say the first couple of weeks? Did you have support? I had limited support because uh, 2007 really was that period of time was transitional for bereavement because hospitals were just getting to where they had a system in place, and you know you still have a generation of people that if they haven't experienced it, they're still of the mindset that you should just go on. Mm-hmm. You just put it behind you and go on. But you still have these physical things happening to your body that you have to heal. My milk still came in and it was painful. And so that was that was just another slap in the face of that I didn't have a baby And then, you know, a week and a half later, I got the call that my baby's ashes were done, that I had to go and pick up my baby's ashes. And so, I mean, it just empty and alone and isolated is is how I felt. And and that, I think, throughout the course of history is nothing new. All of the women that I have spoken to, even though they were probably given less consideration than I was in the hospital— they went home feeling empty, lost, confused, and supported. Lori and uh, Dr. Peoples, is this similar to what you're hearing in, in your work? It is, and there are things that, based on the feedback that we get from families, we are very actively trying to change. And with ongoing bereavement support, and we have yearly bereavement workshops, and we have written policies that talk about how to do things in a certain way and checklist and resources for bereavement and ongoing support after the family has been discharged because we hear from families what their experience was like and how it needs to be different. And we are trying to be responsive to what mothers and fathers and siblings and grandparents are telling us about what that was like for them and how we really, as healthcare providers, need to do a better job. Mm-hmm. And is that what you're involved with, right, Lauren? Yes. Um, on the on the planning side, but also in the event, um, one thing that I noticed Regina saying of when she presented to the hospital, women may get this news in a clinic and they have to go and they're admitted to the same floor next door to someone that they made her screaming baby. Right now, if it occurs at UAMS in our clinics, we offer, um, we hand them a yellow folder that has a lily on it, which is our symbol for love lives. And when the patients even present to our check-in desk, our staff is notified just by seeing that, that that's a loss of some sort. So making more sensitive to that and making that aware instead of any person that comes up with a belly saying, oh, you're a baby, and just Mm -hmm. being Mm -hmm. overly joyed that they take a a sensitivity to the fact that this mother's had a loss. That lily then, once they're admitted, stays with them and is placed on their door through their entire hospital stay. So any physician, nursing staff, including other hospital workers of nutritionists and dietitians, know that that mother has had a loss and trying to be sensitive to that as they enter that room. And actually, the use of the lily started on labor and delivery and in the NICU at UAMS, and it is now being used throughout the hospital. And in other ICUs, they've adopted that practice because we have modeled that as a way to help people be sensitive to what is going on with that particular family. And I think a lot of people don't realize how common this is. Every woman in my family has had a miscarriage. I've had three or four friends that have presented with an IUFD at near term. I feel like every time I'm on service almost um, at UAMS, there's an IUFD, a mom with an IUFD over on labor and delivery that they're inducing. It happens commonly. IFD means what? Uh, an intrauterine fetal demise. So it's a baby that's born before, uh-huh. or uh, dies before it's born. You mentioned the word common, and it does sound from what you're saying that it's common in what you see, but it doesn't feel like, to me anyway, that it's common in our society. It's not common to that mother either. Unfortunately, in this profession, we do see it a lot more, but 
it's not common to that mom and that dad and that entire family for Mm -hmm. that matter or their friends or maybe their whole circle of who they know no one has experienced this right now i know we mentioned at the outset of the program that that it's also sid's awareness and we haven't mentioned sid's yet but i know that that is something that i probably remember hearing maybe in the 80s for the first time is a person with sid's is that a different presentation to you guys as far as bereavement is concerned is that beyond what you normally do it, it is beyond what we normally do because those cases are things that happen at home. And in some cases for babies that are several months old that may not have mm-hmm. been in the NICU. They may have been a healthy term baby that went home at 24 to 48 hours after discharge. It's probably like having a stillbirth at term where everything is fine the whole pregnancy and you go in one day and there are no heart tones. Yeah. You're at home and you go in and check on your child and they're pale, blue, not breathing. That It's just a sudden shock for that mm-hmm. family. And unfortunately, in the roles that we have, where I'm not in a position necessarily to provide that bereavement support to those families if I never had a relationship with them. I think that there are lots of resources available through Children's Hospital and through the Center for Good Morning there and resources around the state for grief and bereavement. Um, but in those cases, I think the sort of outside what our particular role is. I would like to add that Roller Funeral Homes is mm-hmm. a very good resource for infants, uh, for SIDS as well, because they offer free services to infants. And it's an area of education for us as well. And we have, I mean, that's one of the things that we really spend a lot of time teaching our parents about before they go home, things that we can do to prevent that from happening. And there are a lot of things. Safe sleep is one of them. And there's a new campaign that has been rolled out recently with education we provide to families up in the couplet care area of UMS that has cards on the isolate that give them a, a visual cue of the things they should be doing there in the hospital and at home. And we talk about smoking cessation and co-bedding and all kinds of things that we know can decrease the risk of that at home. And mm-hmm. like so many other things, it's part of our job, I feel, as healthcare providers to um, teach families how to take care of their children when they go home to reduce that risk. It doesn't make it zero, but there are things that we can tell them that will reduce that mm-hmm. risk. Uh, UAMS has often been, in, in, in the years we've been doing programs with, uh, that uh, Katrina would se- suggest different topics. Again, thank you, Katrina. UMS seems to be very much on the cutting edge of a lot of different problems or, or the way you guys handle all these different things that come up medically. You mentioned the lily. Is UAMS also kind of on the forefront of finding ways to, uh, to share this handling of this situation that you don't get from other sources? I don't know. I mean, one thing I know that we do offer that Dr. Peoples mentioned is an annual perinatal workshop that's open to staff. It doesn't have to be generated towards nurses that discusses an array of topics in order to educate staff members. I don't know at this point if there's been discussion of us traveling with that, but that could be something in the future that... Uh, The Holy Souls Ministry has expanded throughout many other states in the country And I'm finding that even the prestigious hospitals such as Duke and Brigham and women's hospitals and the Dallas hospitals, uh, Parkland specifically, they had absolutely nothing for their early demises. And so I think the idea from Arkansas, we we are a leader. Arkansas is a leader, and that is because we've had patients that have risen above their grief and used their experience to turn it into something better for the families. Uh, that Mamie's Poppy Plates has done the same thing. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep was a result of a family that lost a baby, I believe, in Colorado. Is mm-hmm. that correct, Dr. Peoples? They're in Denver, yeah. Hospitals have, medical professionals have so many responsibilities in the hospital that they don't necessarily have time to come up with these things that help the situation and and I think it's important and it's it's a wonderful healing experience for these families to come up with ways to help bereavement and I think that really is how things will improve is by feedback. Now you mentioned Holy Souls is that a, a is it a website or something that it's the ministry that I started it's a nonprofit organization it's www.holysouls.org Okay, and I'll put that on our website, too, for those of you who are... And I have several other... Now, down to sleep, Mamie's Poppy Plates. We support and use Molly Bears as well. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Um, um, there, that Molly was, Bears, yeah. What, she, she experienced a loss, but I don't know mm-hmm. her story. Are those Arkansas people? 
Oh, yes. we do have some Arkansas people that are involved in that organization. Mm -hmm. Molly Bears is another national organization, um, but it was started by a mom who had a loss, and they will make a teddy bear that weighs whatever your child weighed so that when you really? leave the hospital, you will not leave with empty arms. Right. And you can have something to hold on to that was the same weight as a child you lost. So we, those sorts of things, those all came from parents. And sometimes as medical providers, we may think we have a good an idea, but what we really need is for families to tell us what matters and what makes a difference and how they want us to respond. And part of, I think, the whole initiative nationwide with patient and family-centered care and our family advisory councils and the bereavement, we have families that sit on our advisory councils for the NICU and for the Love Lives Bereavement Program. And we always have parents and a parent panel at our bereavement workshop so that healthcare providers can sit in the room and listen to the moms and the dads and know what really makes a difference for them. And that's part of, I mean, I, th I see a change in culture at mm -hmm. the hospital in general is taking that feedback from families and using what they're telling us to change our practice. And that's how we become better doctors and nurses mm -hmm. is by listening to the families and listening and learning from their experiences. And I think we've personally seen in the some of our patients that are coming to these and speaking for us, then we're creating that professional aspect, but then that becomes a personal relationship. And then ideas evolve and things build and there's more awareness that comes from that. Mm -hmm. One thing I did want to point out, because we said with Molly Bears, they mm -hmm. can't carry that home though. That's right. You're it's right. something that they get Molly later. Bears, yeah. they can go home and then submit that and then it's sent, it's mailed to them. And then they have that as mm -hmm. that as that memento and that tangible item. That's the same thing for Mamie's poppy plates as well. You collect the footprints and the statistic information and submit that, and then they take care of producing the plate and painting it and making it special now, and personalized. you mentioned these different avenues of access to support. Who goes to those? Is it the mother who does that, who's lost, or is it the, the hospital, or is it the, the grandparents? I mean, We offer it. You as part it. of okay. our bereavement support, we want, and that's part of our training in our workshop, we want our nurses and our physicians and the chaplaincy, people who work there in the NICU and on the labor and delivery floor and in the emergency room. There are losses in the ER mm -hmm. very early that those moms never come to labor and delivery. We want them to be aware of those resources and to offer them to all families. We want families to have as many mementos as they can. We want everyone to be able to, to have things that they can keep with them for years and years to come when they don't have their child with them anymore. You know, we've been talking about infant loss today in SIDS and SIDS Awareness Month, and we've been talking about a perspective that is pretty much female. So tell me about fathers. That, again, is part of our workshop and trying to educate on dads feel this too. A particular story that I love to share, it was our second perinatal workshop that we had held one of our families that came to share their story um, was a loss due to trisomy 18, which is one of our families that we were able to prepare for that loss. The mom shared her story, and as the dad began to talk and cry and sharing that he self-dug his child's grave and carried his child's casket and set it down. And as he was talking and sharing this, he just said, you know, she got to hold him and carry him and feel him move, and I felt him move but I just didn't have that connection like I could do something for him. She was doing something by being his mom the way she could. And he said, by doing that, I was just, I was able to do something. And it just, I think it hit all of us that day in the room of just, dads are grieving too. And they're by her side. And they are protective of their wife and of their child and and they're in pain I think Regina I mean being there with your husband can attest more to that but they my husband definitely grieved in a much different way than I did he was very introspective and where I was I really wanted to talk about it and work through it and he just wanted to be left alone it caused a lot of tension for us because he didn't like to see me upset and hurt and he didn't want to see me going through it and, quote, stubbing my toe over and over again. Why would you do such a thing, you know? And he he tried to just, the best as he could, you know, deal with it in his own way without bothering me with it, if you will. He kept to himself. I think we, we sometimes forget to um, acknowledge the other family members in the room. We focus on the mother 
And it's important to focus on the mom and the emotional support that she needs, but also medically, like you talked about. We have resources now for lactation after loss and how to care for yourself after delivery because those things are still important. But we forget about the dad sometimes, and sometimes we forget about the grandparents. And, and a lot siblings. of times we forget about the siblings. And yeah. you know, the grandparent, if you have a, a, a mother, and I've heard people say this on family panels, I'm grieving the loss of my grandchild, and I'm also grieving for my daughter who has lost her child. It's like a double whammy for them. Like their grief is compounded in a way because they are watching their daughter hurt, and they're hurting themselves. And it's just a different type of grief, and we don't always do what we need to do to recognize and support that. And there's a lot of support we try to give for siblings because we know that they grieve as well. They're anticipating a baby at home and then things change. And a lot of times what we get to do in the prenatal setting is sometimes families have done a lot of research and they understand the diagnosis and the prognosis and they're almost at peace with that. And the big burden for them is how to explain that to their seven-year-old at home. And that is an overwhelming task for them. And it's not something that anybody ever is prepared to deal with. But we have resources available at Children's Hospital, and we rely heavily on our child life specialist and the Center for Good Morning and their sibling grief support groups that they have because those children carry that burden as well. And families just don't know how to talk to them in an appropriate way. And it's important for them to be able to grieve appropriately and to be involved and to come out of that process the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And so we, we really try to include them as well. And it's important, I think, to remember that perspective. It's not all on nurses, but it is so much staff, staff education that's involved because typically in a live birth, uh, a baby gets a bath. Well, so does a stillborn. And offering for dad to give that bath or for grandma or for siblings to come help with that process and, and let them do it, not let nurses do all that because we don't have to. And that's available for the families to do. And then you incorporate things like now lay me down to sleep and a photographer there to then capture that moment for them, for them to have for a lifetime. Now, you're talking about a situation where a family knows they're going in with this No, right? I mean, huh? if a family finds out they come to the hospital or go to the clinic that day and they're 38 weeks and there's no heartbeat, they still have to go have that baby, and that baby can still get a bath and still get dressed and be held by its family and warmed and loved on, and and that time is provided to them. Make some mm -hmm. memories. It's and make memories. To make some memories. Yeah. What is the quote? Adding minutes to life, adding hours to life, but adding life to the hours you have. Oh, life yeah. minutes you have. Just the idea that we, even when we know families have a short time, we want to maximize the time that they have. We want to create space for memories. We want them to be together as a family. Um, and we want that experience to be the best that it can be in the midst of a terrible and tragic circumstance. Let me ask another question that comes from not knowing a lot about this uh, process of children and all that having having the child but when if let's say you're going to a, a full term and and everything seems normal up until the time of birth is that a is that a common thing too to to see a death at birth no but we do see it I mean I can think of a few cases right now just over the last year and I think part of that our perspective is we take care of high-risk moms I work in a place where we have high-risk deliveries just because of the institution and the, the population that we serve. And so I feel, I feel like sometimes my perspective is a little bit different because I know that the sickest babies and the sickest moms are going to come to us. Um, but we do have surprises like that, and we have babies that were supposed to have been fine and something happens right at the time of delivery just because bad things happen on labor and delivery. It's just the nature of that, that process. And, and sometimes we are surprised, and we are a family was anticipating taking a baby home at 24 hours and they are now in the NICU or we're talking about funeral arrangements. Mm -hmm. And again, that, that unanticipation of that, I think, I mean, it's always hard and I'm not, again, speaking from experience as a mom, it's never easy. It's always difficult on the family. Uh, but in those cases where you are just in complete shock over what just happened to you, I think it's worse. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you've said it a couple of times. And I know this is where you work, the NICU. And that's, mm -hmm. to me, that's a term that is new. I mean, historically, an EQ sounds like something fairly modern. It is. Neonatology as a specialty is relatively new. What are you seeing there that is in preparation for the future when it comes to th stuff like this? It, one of the reasons I really like the specialty in ways that it is um, constantly changing, and we are always, always learning new things about how to take care of babies and how to take care of smaller babies and how to do a better job taking care of babies that are delivered early. Mm -hmm. I think it's a field that's constantly changing. And that's 
it's fun in a way to see those advances. Um, I think, though, because of, of what we deal with, we also, with earlier diagnosis, there are still some things that we can't necessarily fix or correct, but we know about them sooner. And so I think in a lot of things, what we do and what we do with the fetal uh, anomalies program and the fetal diagnosis and management is to diagnose before delivery some things that we still can't affect the outcome as far as prognosis or lifespan, but we can prepare the families and we can provide things that really maximize quality of life in a different way mm -hmm. than we were able to years ago. From a parent perspective, I am a parent. I have not self had a child that I've lost, but hearing multiple panels of parents and talking to these families as they experience a loss and afterwards. Um, our most recent parent panel, one mom said, please don't tell me you understand. She said, because I don't understand the parent next to her. She said, I don't understand what she's feeling. I don't understand what this other mom is feeling. We've all experienced a loss but I don't understand specifically what they feel. I know what I feel, and I know that you don't understand. And, and it that just... That's very true. Mm -hmm. And I think a, very one thing is across the board, and I think that pulls into this into the waves of light ceremony, is it's that's to honor this, this experience of loss of whatever route that it presented itself that... Mm -hmm. Well, Regina, did you have a, a part of the time after the event where you wanted to be left alone with this and don't bother me with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't really start trying to sew until my baby's due date, which was October of 2007. And it was only because my mother encouraged some of her friends to get together and some of those women mothers second mothers to me they they wanted to help me as well and the interesting thing about that is that what they they put together those items those garments were too big and i might have stopped at that point but the united methodist church decided to cover what we were doing as a story and things i accountability came into play and then i felt like i was accountable that i was called to do this and one thing led to another, and mm -hmm. I finally succeeded. Did you ever find out why Ryan died? I do not know. I have no idea. Well, Dr. Peoples, that mm -hmm. takes me to the question, are we in any way close to finding out why babies die like that? Sometimes, and Lori mentioned that earlier, we do have the ability now to do genetic testing on those early losses in particular to see if there was a chromosomal abnormality or another genetic abnormality that would explain the loss. And for a lot of families, it gives them, I think, some sense of closure. Some people just want to know why if they can. And in some cases, if we find a reason and it's something that might happen again, that information is important for families to know. So we try to get as much information as we can, knowing that we don't always find an answer. But there are ways for us to look for answers now that we didn't have a few years ago. And so we are uh, providing that information and those services when we can. Another um, aspect of this that comes to my mind as a layman in this thing, and I, I always hear, I've heard it for a number of years, that golden hour in an accident, if they get somebody to the hospital within an hour, that something can usually be done, I guess. If in the case of uh, Lori's situation, if the alarms had gone off in enough time is that something that we could look forward to the future that people in, in the NICUs or whatever the operating rooms or emergency rooms could possibly invade and pull and preserve a, a life? We do in some cases. You do? And, and we have had, um, I can't think of how many stat C-sections I've been to or a mom has come into the hospital because the baby's just not moving like it was before. And we can recognize that and deliver that baby in time to save its life. Not always is that the case, but there are some cases where we can intervene and we can save a life in, in, a, in a time when, when we used to not have the ability to do that. Is this what I hear about when you see the baby's only that big? When... Now, there are still limits, and at certain yeah. gestational ages, there, there are still limits to what we can do with medical technology. I think there always will be. There are some babies that, w with all that we can do right now, they're just too small. Their lungs are just not fully developed. Their skin is too thin. There is not a service that we could provide as far as keeping them alive. Mm -hmm. But I tell people there's always something that we can do for the family. 
and there's always something that we can do for support and for bereavement services and for memory making and really maximizing the time even it's just a different focus of care so it's not a lack of care it's just care in a different way and for miscarriage in that circumstance they're not in a as far as a routine routinely if you become pregnant and you take a positive pregnancy test if you call to get your first OB visit they go off a, a last menstrual period and they set you up at maybe 10 to 12 weeks and then you wait a few more weeks and you go in again and you're at a gestational age to in Regina's case hear a heartbeat and when you're there that's the first as of now that's the first when testing is started ultrasound mm-hmm. and things come later so in the event of an early on miscarriage they're just in those new appointments and the new findings of it to be able to hear a heartbeat with the technology yeah. we have. Well, Regina, was yours considered a miscarriage? Yes. It was? Miscarriage, is is it before 20 weeks, mm-hmm. Dr. Peoples? Mm-hmm. But to me, I still went through labor and delivery. Mm-hmm. He right. was born, so I had a stillborn. I don't care what anybody defines it yeah. as. And you were handed him. I was and handed a baby. That's your baby. He was stillborn. I think some people don't realize, even when they're that early, what they look like. And they're very immature, and their skin is very thin, but they are fully formed. They have five fingers and five toes. They have eyes and a nose and a mouth. Some of them have hair all over their head. They are little babies. They're too small for us to take care of as far as our medical technology, but they look like small human beings. And I think us recognizing that and treating them like that from what we've heard from families, it's so important for them because they look like a baby. They're just a really, really, really tiny baby. I mm-hmm. am always weekly, monthly, fairly regularly. People send pictures of their babies to Holy Souls and thank us for their service, for our service to them because they were presented with a baby. And they have the... the item that you guys have sent them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we send the kits to the hospitals it's a complete kit that has you know um, a tunic and a blanket and a wrap and a teddy bear that's size appropriate and a cap and a memory card so it's a nice kit that's easy for the nurses to to take to the families and ideally the nurses would be able to give the families a choice you know, the, right. the, it's the one and only time they'll get to dress their baby. And so my hope is that they have a choice when there is no choice. Uh, also, Regina, it's been a number of years, but the process of grieving, is it any different, you think, because it was a baby than it would be if it were a, a friend or a family member? Absolutely. How's it different? I felt like a part of my soul was missing. I felt like I had failed. My body had failed. You know, I had lost someone that I loved before, and I knew how to deal with that. I'd never lost my baby. You know, it's so profoundly, I don't even know how to explain that to you, but it's more than just a life that's lost. It's all of these dreams that you have for your child, all of the first tricycle rides, all of the first steps, the first words, all of those things are gone. Just like that. I guess I have to come back to the male end of things. I've never experienced that myself. But I can't imagine how a father, as best he would try, would be able to get even close to what the mother would feel when it comes to that. My husband still thinks about, you know, our son would be about eight years old, roughly. And, you know, it's hunting season and Mm -hmm. it's football time. And and he, you know, wanted to have a son to do those things with. Mm Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. And so I know it still affects him. This has been a tough program to talk about, but I'm glad that we shared these thoughts about a very uh, sobering topic. A lot of th- topics we cover on the program are lighthearted or they're, they're whatever. But every now and then we get the opportunity to deal with something that not every part of our society has to deal with. But I think it's good for the rest of us to hear about this type of thing. I do want to thank my guest for being with me here today. Uh, Regina Vins is the founder and coordinator of Holy Souls, an organization that has provided handmade infant burial clothing for families that experience the loss of their baby during the gestational weeks of 16 to 25. 
Regine, thanks for your story and for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having and, us. And uh, also Lori Gardner, she's serving as the program manager and specialty nurse for the UAMS Angels of Arkansas Fetal Diagnosis and Management Program. Lori, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And also Dr. Sarah Ellen Peoples. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics, the Division of Neontology here at UMS, and she's also with the Arkansas Hospital uh, palliative care team. And I know the palliative, palliative care is another portion we never really got, really got into. Give me a few words about that, Dr. Peoples. I can give you a whole lot more than a few words. <laughs> okay. that. That, might another, that might be a whole other segment. It is great, but and I think we talk about palliative care and people talk about that in hospice and really mm -hmm. the application of that to children is relatively new, but the application of those concepts to fetal and perinatal medicine is also a new concept. Mm -hmm. But really we are just... In a true sense, family-centered care, patient and family-centered care, maximizing quality of life, bereavement support when necessary. We talk about end-of-life care when that's appropriate, and really doing what we can, medical, emotional, psychosocial, spiritual care of the child and the family um, as they're dealing with a chronic or life-limiting illness. Mm -hmm. I think in establishing those resources for them, if we have a family that they know their baby is not going to live prolonged, we not, don't always know how long, um, having those discussions prenatally and talking about what funeral home do you think you want to go to? What do you want for your baby? I had a friend say, how do I bury my baby? And I said, we've got resources to help you. Yeah. One final story. My dad was a pastor all the time I was growing up. I can remember as a young person, he would have to do a child funeral every now and then. Wasn't often, but every now and then. And that was hard for him. I guess it was hard for him to see the family deal in a death different than his normal funerals. It wasn't Absolutely. the normal funeral. So I'm sure I'll edit that out. But it's uh, okay. I think it's important. I think people talk about that. It seems like it is just opposite of what's the word. I mean, it seems unnatural for a child to die. Yeah, it really right. does. Yeah. It seems yeah. so contrary to everything we expect for and hope for um, to deal with the death of a child or an infant or a baby. It is just not the way things are supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. That does. That goes back to the, I mean, it hurts to talk about this. It hurts to talk about it. But we should. We but should we talk should. about Absolutely. it. And I'm glad we did. Again, uh, folks, thanks for listening to the program. Join us next time. And I do want to say thanks again to uh, Katrina Dupas. Katrina, you did it again. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is a production of KUAR Public Radio, Little Rock.